This is Business Leaders, now a part of the Beyond Markets podcast. Our Business Leaders episodes will focus on the stories and successes of entrepreneurs from across the globe. In this episode, our host Alan Hooks is joined by Kerry Jones, founder and CEO of specialist eating disorder treatment service Ori. In this episode, Kerry discusses the power of kindness and shares the realities of running a purpose-driven business. Kerry, really grateful to have you on today and it's a real special edition. We're down in Carbis Bay in Cornwall and had the pleasure of Kerry joining the Julius Baird team down here for the last couple of days. So Kerry, welcome and great to see you. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be here. I've got a beautiful view of the sea behind you, so I'm very happy. <laughs> it was really sunny earlier. Now it's really, really cold. So, mm, it is um, definitely chilly. I think we're probably best inside. Mm. Kerry, there's so much to talk to you about, and I think your business is incredibly special. Mixing that purpose with profit, which I think is an incredibly interesting area. But before we get on to Ori, your background itself is something we could talk about for hours on. It's not necessarily conventional, I would say, but just start us off there in terms of your background, what you got up to in your early days, being a dancer, parading around to becoming a psychotherapist. Mm. Yeah, I've had a life in three chapters currently, I like to think. So I grew up dancing professionally, as you say. I think when I was about the age of three, I'd driven my parents to distraction. I was regularly dressed in a tutu and a pair of wellies, and my mum threw me into a dance class. And I was very fortunate to be spotted as part of a ballet school outreach and started dancing, which I thoroughly enjoyed. When I was 16, I then went to the Brit School, which really was like fame, if people who are old enough to remember the TV series with people sat around strumming guitars and breaking into dance at a second's notice and had a really fantastic two years there. And actually during that time, both my love of being on the stage but also around the stage really sort of started to grow and develop. Mm. And one of the great things about the school is it gives you the opportunity to look at different areas. And so I got very interested in promoting and working with the people who were the performers. And as a result of that, much to my parents' horror and dismay, I decided that I wasn't going to go to a very reputable university and read English and politics, but I was going to spend some time with a fantastic fantastic sound system deep techno called club alien who did believe that aliens were going to come down down. through music i didn't quite believe that but i loved the music and so i had a great time with them but i'm a big believer in synchronicity and i was then approached by matthew freud freud communications to work for them they were working with brands like ministry of sound and radio one and this was very much in the early days when youth branding was really Mm. starting to be pioneered Mm. and so i went to work for them and i had further great years then traveling around the world looking after celebrities doing big events and then eventually moved across into the more grown-up serious side of public relations and marketing doing fmcg brands and then moved across into travel and then my final job was head of PR for the Thresher Group before it went it's under. Incredible, Gary. Incredible. <laughs> and talk us through that transition from the dancer to promoter to PR <laughs> into psychotherapy. How did that come about? It's interesting because I think they're all linked, right. actually. So I started my psychotherapy training whilst I was still working in public relations. My mum is a psychotherapist by background, so it was very much in my blood. And I've 
always thought it's interesting how I ended up working for Freud's because Matthew is the great great grandson mm. of Sigmund Freud. Yes. So there's something about that connectivity. And I guess the type of psychotherapy that I practice, I'm what's called an integrative relational psychotherapist, is a very embodied form of psychotherapy. And as a dancer, the thing that you work with is your somatic experience. So when you're communicating how you feel, when you're performing, it's all done through your body. So for me, there's this sort of natural synergy that comes between the psychotherapy work that I do and the dancing and even the public relations, because it's all about people's psyche. It's about connecting with people, understanding what people want finding relationship with people mm. clearly in public relations and marketing there's another angle in there you're looking to engage people for a secondary purpose but I think there is even that in psychotherapy you know you're mm. looking to help people develop grow heal so there's definitely a connection and a communication thread running through all of those things absolutely yeah uh, whether that's your dance and your creativity or yeah. your PR yeah or even indeed your therapy with patience I guess in terms of trying to bring that out of people yeah very much so and was there anything from an eating disorder perspective that was a major trigger in your mind to regard that as one of your specialist areas I hadn't initially made the connection when I went into psychotherapy I didn't say right I'm going to go and work in eating disorders it was an area that I was very interested in Having grown up around dancers, I had seen a number of people become very unwell with eating disorders. And sadly, somebody close to me had died of an eating disorder. And I'd seen the devastation, not only for the individual, but for the people around that person, their family, their friends, their teachers. It was just utterly destroyed people's lives. Mm. And I remember even as a teenager looking at that and really not understanding how somebody could get a mental health illness and die from it. Mm. It just didn't compute. Mm. And I think that theme is what carried through into my professional life. One of the things I really struggle with with eating disorder treatment is if you or I turned up at the doctor tomorrow and said, listen, I've got a lump. What they wouldn't say is, look, go away and let's see how big that lump is in six months time. Mm. They would say, right, here's a referral pathway. We're going to check that out. We're going to understand it. Whereas in eating disorders, we don't do that. We don't have sufficient knowledge, understanding, resource to lean in and say, so what's going on here? Mm. And so what we then see is people missing that vital, vital window, which is early intervention. And in illness, it's all too often hidden, right? Hugely, yeah. And there's still a stigma around eating disorders? Yeah. Talk us through just some of the numbers, Kerry. Mm. I think having looked into it, absolutely staggering in terms of just the number of people in this country still suffering with, I guess, undiagnosed eating disorders. Yeah. So I guess not only the numbers, but in terms of the types of people, the demographic, what have you found over the years in terms of that aspect? We estimate that between 1.24 million and 3.2 million at any one time have a diagnosed eating disorder in the UK. So that will so, be. So when we talk about bulimia, anorexia, thinking. bulimia, binge eating disorder are the three most prevalent eating disorders. Mm. We're seeing a rise in what's called ARFID, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which often coalesces with autism. The difficulty with eating disorder treatment is, as you say, that people are often very reluctant to reach out for support. Mm. One of the misconceptions about an eating disorder is that it's all about food. Mm. And actually it's not. It's about protection, whether you don't eat enough or you overeat. There's something that you're trying to get away from, a discomfort, a pain. Mm. I think it's a disorder of soothing. It's trying to soothe a harm or a hurt. Mm. And so the difficulty we have with our services is if we meet people with that belief that we need to help them by feeding them or reducing the food that they eat, Mm. we miss the core of what they need. In the last 
12 months alone, we've seen a 400% increase in the number of people presenting at services, which is just shocking. And of that, around 216% increase of people from BAME communities actually presenting for treatment. Now, this is compounded by the fact that if you go to see your GP, they don't have any training. Mm-hmm. BEAT, who's the National Charity for Eating Disorders, have been doing some really positive awareness work around this. But typically in a GP's training, they may get between 15 and 20 minutes of information on an eating disorder. Yeah. And when you consider that eating disorders, they have the highest mortality rate of any mental health illness. Mm. Like that's a considerable problem. Yeah. And I think the stereotypes that then also come alongside that perpetuate the issue that we've got. So yeah. If we think that eating disorders typically affect, and it's an unpleasant acronym, but the acronym is SWAG, skinny, white, affluent girls, what we're not looking for are the young men who are presenting or people from the trans community Mm. or gay men who are presenting. You know, we're missing the fact that people of colour are not getting recognised because perhaps their BMIs don't meet the admission criteria that we've set for our services. So we've got this real complexity of issues preventing people from A, getting recognised, B, getting into treatment, and then C, getting the decent treatment that they need. And is it true, Kerry, I mean, like many hidden illnesses, um, one, it's complex. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I'm guessing there are other issues going on, whether that's a mental health matter whether it's depression yeah could it be the case that there's actually further numbers that are going undiagnosed as a result yeah we estimate about 86 percent of people who have an eating disorder and are undiagnosed so that's the sort of number of people that just live with an eating disorder and i think staggeringly around 54 percent of the lgbtq plus community have an eating disorder which is extraordinary And Kerry, just coming back to your experience and your history, Mm -hmm. you touched on PR, you touched on your dancing, etc. We haven't spoken about the NHS, Mm -hmm. where you spent some of your earlier years, I guess. Mm -hmm. How, in your experience, has the National Health Service been dealing with this up to now? Mm. I think the first thing I always like to say when we talk about the NHS is that the people within the NHS teams are exceptional. Mm. There are some great clinicians out there doing incredible work with a lack of resources. The difficulty is that the landscape those services are being executed within is so deprived. Mm. So the types of experiences that people get when they get into treatment, it reflects that. What we see when people come into treatment at Ori is a lot of trauma. And quite often that trauma is treatment related trauma, which feels completely Mm. at odds with what we're doing. Mm. The issues that we have at the moment in the UK is that we have this growing population, children and young people, who then push up into our adult eating disorder services. We have a lack of people who are trained in working with eating disorders. We don't have the expert-led care that we need. We have the highest level of burnout in the staff group. We don't have enough beds. We've got a restructured eating disorder landscape over recent years in terms of how the NHS are funding eating disorder treatment. And we've got people routinely being treated out of area, struggling to get treatment near to their home. So it's very, very common for young people to be 150 miles away from home, which is devastating. And Kerry, I suspect that was a trigger for Ori, right? 100%. What was that seminal moment where you said, you know what, I need to do something about this. Mm. I need to create something where I can really make a difference and have a positive Mm. impact. Talk us through that transition from being a psychotherapist in practice, Mm -hmm. whether that's in the NHS or within private sector, to creating Ori. What did that look like? So I was working at the Priory and I was working in inpatient units and There's a term which I find very unpleasant, but it 
is reflective of what happens. We talk about revolving door patients in eating disorder treatment. So what would happen is we would have a person who would come in, they would be with us for six to ten months on the ward, their admission BMI might be nine or ten, so an incompatible with life BMI, and we'd get them to a point where they were more robust and then they would be discharged from treatment and what would happen three, four months later is we'd have a board in the ward office and you'd see their name reappear. And I found this just incredibly disheartening. And what would happen is the person would come back in and what they would say is, well, I discharged. It was six weeks before I saw my psychiatrist. It was 10 weeks before I saw a dietitian. And by then, you know, I'd lost the weight that I gained. Yeah. And both myself and the teams were just feeling, oh, this is desperate. You know, it feels like there needs to be something that happens when people leave hospital where they are held, contained. And for me, it was two-sided, really. We want to prevent people from getting to the point where they are so poorly that they need to go into hospital mm. but for people who have to go into hospital myself and my colleagues are great advocates for the fact that once you've got somebody physically stable they can be treated alongside their everyday life mm. and that clearly is the best place for them to be mm. what clients will tell you if they were sitting here with me today is it's all very well doing it on a hospital ward where 24 7 seven days a week someone feeds me and looks after me but as soon as i go home and i'm back in the environment the eating disorder lived in with me it manifests itself 100 percent straight back into those old behavioral patterns the concept for ori was effectively a community that you can come to a place of safety a safe haven if you will whereby you are able to bring the struggle and be met with kindness and with expertise and professionalism of course but where you will be listened to heard supported and we're in it with you on the day-to-day so Clients will come from half past 10 in the morning to half past six at night. They'll have a full group therapy program. We eat with them and we really get to know them and they get to know us. So we create this incredible community of warmth and strength and kindness. It's unbelievably humbling. When clients first reach out to us, understandably, you know, it might be a mum or a dad or a loved one that's suggesting they come and they are terrified absolutely terrified and I say to them within a couple of weeks you won't want to go home on a Friday evening and they look at me like I'm mad like there's absolutely no way and I see them after that first Mm. week and they're looking at me saying I'll get it now you know I feel safe here yeah and it's a real distinction isn't it for or I've had the pleasure of seeing your wonderful building in central London. It strikes me it's just wonderful. And one, it's a very distinctive building, but secondly, looks nothing like a clinical facility. And how important is that for your patients? Yeah, it's absolutely vital. My colleague, Maxine, who I've very much built the service with and developed the service alongside, is an OT by background, 30 years of eating disorder experience. And the one thing the two of us said is it needs to feel like a home. It Mm. needs to feel like a place of safety. And when we were putting the service together, Max and I went up and down the country, put focus groups on with people who so generously gave us their time to tell us exactly what this place needed to Mm. be like. And the wonderful thing about our clients is they have got a voice when they find it and they love to use it. So they were very clear about certain things big sofas, relaxed spaces, spaces that food doesn't come into, but where we do have food, make it normal. This was their word, make it normal. So we've got a big open plan kitchen. We've got a great chef, Rory, who they all get to know. We have playlist of the day. Max, she will decorate a building for any reason at all. Like this is an occupational therapist thing, I'm sure of it. International cupcake day or whatever it might be. There's lots of change in the environment. We've built the environment with a sensory perspective. So it's trauma informed in that 
things like doors close quietly. Yeah. And we have scents around. We have a smell so that when people are distressed and going home, they can take the scent home with them. So that's a shortcut into that part of your neural pathway. We have fabrics and textures. So all these little things that just soften the environment. But on site are all the things that are there to keep people safe. So yeah. we have a clinic room. We have nurses. We have doctors. We have mm. all the monitoring equipment that you would expect. But it's done in a very subtle, warm, comfortable way. What strikes me, Kerry, is we talk to lots of entrepreneurs on the podcast. We've had the pleasure of speaking to Manny and they talk about the business. They talk about their company. You've not mentioned either of those terms throughout this whole conversation. You've spoken about your community. Mm. Is that deliberate? It's just how it is. Just how it feels. Mm. Absolutely. Ori is a company. It is a business. And we are ambitious for our organisation. But we are a client-led organisation. We are there to serve the people who come through that door, who need the treatment and the support. And I think because we are a clinician-led team, that really brings that through. And when you're pulling together your team, and obviously it's a growing community of people, what are the key things that you look for? That's a great question. It's really interesting. We get a huge number of CVs that come through, really impressive CVs. And it's a given that you're qualified, that you're an expert, you know, you're good at what you do in terms of your experience. But the number one thing is, are you kind? Kindness is at the heart. We say, you know, outstanding care is what we do, but kindness makes us Ori. It's vital that every single person in that organisation, we call it the Christmas party test, like I would like to sit next to you at the Christmas party, from the person who does the housekeeping to the person who washes up to the person in our finance team to the OT, the dietitian, etc. Like all of us are good people at heart, passionate people, and really we love what we do as part of the Ori community. Mm -hmm. And then the clients, I think one of the really interesting things about the team is that, so for example, our clients do all the second interviews of every team member that we employ and it holds equal weighting and it's frustrating at times I'm not going to lie because recruitment is laborious it takes a long time etc you're rushing you're growing and then the client says I don't like them and you're like oh my goodness I thought they were great and on the few occasions when we've said no come on let's give them a chance the clients have always been right so as part of the process Gary you get your clients to interview new candidates coming through yep every single person in that organization has had a client interview fascinating mm-hmm. at any point if you've overridden those decisions yeah we've done it twice and neither of those people are with us <laughs> so frustrating <laughs> and one of the clients just sat back she was like told you <laughs> brilliant real community mm. okay let's talk a little bit about profit and purpose and i'll be controversial here mm-hmm. a lot of the opportunities that you've seen is as a result of shortcomings i guess in the social care system yeah as you say through no fault of no. the authorities there's just a sheer gap yeah whether absolutely. that's understanding whether that's training whatever it might be but that's created an opportunity for you to create in your words a community and you're making money you're a commercial enterprise as such do you see any conflict in that do you see any concern from a balanced perspective in terms of you're now a business owner mm. you're a ceo and I know you struggle about that concept, but you are. Mm-hmm. And talk to me a little bit about that. Is that a consideration for you? Yeah, it's another really interesting question. When I was working in the Priory, a lot of clients used to say to me, we need to be treated differently. Mm. And almost I felt like I had this responsibility to mm. do that. It felt like a movement almost. Mm that the intention behind Ori was to go out and disrupt the way that we treat eating disorders in the UK, was to demonstrate that you could do it in a more cost-effective way, in a kinder way, 
and you could have not even comparable outcomes but better outcomes than we were seeing Mm -hmm. you know there's a saying in eating disorders a third and a third and a third a third will get better a third will stay the same and a third will deteriorate Mm -hmm. what we see at ORI is around 85% of people who come through treatment at ORI recover and typically how long might that take it would vary so our average length of stay is around 24 to 30 weeks it will be longer if you're coming with a much lower BMI and shorter if you're coming earlier on in your treatment process and in your recovery Mm. trajectory, Mm. really. Mm. So that's Mm. costly, that's expensive. Yeah, absolutely. So that dilemma in terms of, have you actually just created a private clinic here Mm -hmm. for people that are wealthy enough that can afford it, that have got the backing to be able to deal with an issue or a problem? On one level, you can say, yes, we have. We had to look at a way to prove the concept And the only way we were going to be able to do that was to get it funded. It wasn't going to be the NHS. They weren't going to be able to. Although every single person I speak to in the NHS, my friends and colleagues are saying, we all know this is what we need to be doing. Fully integrated, multidisciplinary care with a flat therapeutic structure, which brings together all the different parts that treat the individual. We all know that. And we don't need tons and tons of research to tell us that that's what's going to work. Because quite frankly, you know, I say to people all the time, it's common sense what mm. we do. Yes, mm. it's complex and it requires a lot of expertise, but fundamentally it's common sense. So yes, we have created an organisation that is primarily around 75% of our income is privately funded currently. Now, the other part that I would say that is controversial, and I'm comfortable with saying this, is that we don't want to become an NHS-funded service because with that comes a lot of restraint and fundamentally you have to give up a lot of what you believe because the NHS, because of the pressures that they are under, will come in and want to change the model Mm. that you're offering. And I've seen that happen in a lot of services. Mm. It's a complex one for us to hold. So I think where we get comfortable with it is around our authenticity as an organisation. Back to your mission, Kerry. Back to our mission, yeah. We do genuinely treat people with passion and kindness. We do a lot of social outreach work. We run an amazing group called Nurturing Hope. It's a programme where we offer free group therapy and we go out into the community. We do work in underprivileged, deprived areas. We do webinar series, we do Instagram lives. You know, we've got a really active community. And what's amazing is a lot of the team will do that just because. They'll say to me, oh, I haven't done a live for a while. Can I do one? Like, yeah, of course you can. What do you want to talk about? It's amazing yeah. because they're committed. Some of your clients are treated online yeah how do you really understand a client who has an eating disorder and treat them remotely that seems really tough really difficult yeah we won't surprise you to hear that march 2020 we did a little bit of a pivot because we found <laughs> that ourselves didn't exist before <laughs> nobody, nobody, well, nobody they were pivoted. in ballet we were pivoting <laughs> course, all the time in ballet your, your experience has yeah. stood you in good stead exactly i didn't even know it was a business term <laughs> We opened an online program in response to our clients that we hadn't needed to hold. And I was sceptical. I'm an old school psychotherapist who believed that you needed to be sat in the room to really feel the individual. But what we did was we replicated the program. So we said, okay, what are the things that keep it safe? Physical health monitoring, how are we going to do that at distance? So we engage local services, GPs, etc., to do the physical health monitoring. And through the wonders of technology, we can do online ways. You can hold your phone up, we can look, and we can get parents and loved ones involved to quantify data and things like that. So we have safety checks in place. We've got the same team, the same group program. So your experience online is identical to your experience in the building. 
the difference is we're not in the same space. Now, this is an uncomfortable reality for me, but our Director of Research and Development is a fantastic consultant psychiatrist, Professor Paul Robinson, who I think is 55 years into his career and sceptical about the digital world, I think is reasonable to say. And what we are seeing in our outcome monitoring is not just like-for-like results online versus in-person, but our online is slightly outperforming our in-person. And I think this is because the treatment literally happens alongside your everyday life. Mm -hmm. So when a client is struggling in group, and I always say it's because they're nosy, but they tell me it's all therapeutically orientated, they say, right, let's go into the kitchen. Let's go and see what's in the cupboard. Let's get something out. Let's do this together. What do you need right now? Let's create the safe space in your bedroom where you can do your deregulation and we can start to think about the things that are causing Mm. you stress right now. Mm. So it happens really, really in their everyday lives. They take their phones. They go into the supermarket. Dietitians trotting up and down the aisle with you. It's transformative. Brilliant. Brilliant. Kerry, I want to talk to you a little bit about you as a businesswoman. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Toes curl. It's hard to get uncomfortable in the chair, but let's talk about that. I mean, you talk like many business owners with great passion and energy about the issue at hand, and this one being one of the most sensitive ones. How do you retain that sort of flame? How do you retain that passion when you're running a business you're dealing with investors, you're trying to raise money, you're dealing with financial services and bankers and all of these things. How do you actually maintain that focus on the real issue at hand that you created Ori with? It is difficult, actually. I think there's a number of things that sort of come up for me when you say that. So the first one is, I find as a founder and CEO, you are so incredibly busy Mm. that you don't have a lot of time to think about what you're doing. So Mm. you've just got to keep going. (laughs) You know, there's a problem, something's on fire, how are you going to put it out, right? So you've you've just got to have this constant go, go, go energy. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I have been struck with is how even though I've got an amazing team around me it can be lonely like mm. the CEO part is quite lonely because ultimately the decision and the responsibility sits with you mm. so I've got a great mentor I've got a great therapist I've got a great supervisor you know I look after myself in that way I love my yoga don't get to do enough of it but you know I'm really trying harder it's that face mask analogy isn't it yeah look after yourself before you can look after others, 100% right? yeah and one of the things I've learned is I haven't been very good at that you know, I've got people around me who are trying to hold me accountable and I'm getting better, but I'm still not brilliant. And that's the absolute truth of that. The other thing that I have discovered is having the right people around you. So as a clinician turned business owner, there are gaps in my knowledge. There are things that I don't feel as comfortable with. I think one of the advantages I've got, actually, when I speak to entrepreneurs who've been to business school is they know the things that they should know. And I don't. Mm -hmm. So I'm quite happy to say, oh, can you just run that by me again? You know, I remember in the early first fundraise conversations, people talking about EBITDA and me just saying, I don't actually know what you're talking about. Like, what is EBITDA? And then sitting me down. And I find that people are so willing to help you Mm. if you ask the question. Mm. So I haven't had this experience of, oh, you know, you're in finance, therefore you're dull and I don't understand you. Because I'm genuinely curious about what it is they do. I'm fascinated. It's like you speak Russian, you know, I speak French. Can you teach me your language? And that's been a real sort of eye-opener. So I've enjoyed that, bizarrely. And you come from a position without experience so therefore Mm -hmm. you don't have the fear yeah you don't have the lessons that you've learned from before or the mistakes that you've made before yeah you're walking into it with eyes wide open yeah I remember sitting down with my mentor when we'd just gone past our third birthday and he said you know most startups don't get to this point 
don't you? And I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> I don't sit with all that anxiety and that pressure of that knowledge, I guess, mm. as you say, mm. you know, I'm incredibly determined. So it's not an option that it's not going to work. Yeah. The question isn't, what do we do if it goes wrong? The question is always, right, where do we need to be next? What are we doing? How do we respond? How do we change? Yeah. Kerry, one of the things you said before is when you raised funds, which was last year, you said it was all beginner's luck. It went well, I got through it. I know it wasn't as simple as that. How did you find that from somebody without that experience before? What was your observation there? Going into it, I was really nervous because I obviously expected that I was going to sit down and they were going to say, well, you're a fraud. You have no idea what you're doing. And Lucy, who's our COO, who I met actually through Impact Ventures, who were the first investors that we took, I was like, oh, Lucy, you're going to have to lead all this. She was like, no, 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 that's not how this works. Like, you're going to have to lead this. I was like, oh, my God. You're the boss, right? Exactly. I was like, damn it. <laughs> so I was very, very nervous going into that process. But I think it comes back to, you know what, we really need this. So I'm going to have to make it work somehow. So I described the process initially like speed dating. We worked with BDO, who were fantastic. Their team really helped us build our deck out and did a load of education for us and did some role play around what's your name and where'd you come from I call that the Scylla Black moment some people won't know who that is yeah and then we got into the conversations and the thing again that really struck out for me and I think it's just deeply relational every time for me mm. it was when we started to talk to people who really got what we did mm. and we got down to four offers which was great. And again, I didn't realise that this was quite an exceptional situation to be in. And then we whittled it down to two. And then we went with Gresham, yeah. who really from the very, very first meeting with the Gresham team, they were the one that I wanted. It clicked. It clicked. What was it you liked about them? And on the other side, what is it you thought attracted Gresham to Ori? Hmm. What I liked about them was they really understood our business there was a considerable opportunity they got that and I think that's what they liked they can see the fact that this is a very scalable opportunity and that what we were doing was already having considerable traction but with the right sort of emphasis and support around it that clearly we could go a lot further what I also liked about them was that one of the obvious questions is why not do it more quickly we have an ambitious but cautious plan in that over the next three to five years, we will start to see the organisation. So we're taking on a second site in London. Then probably this time next year, we'll be moving into our first site outside of London. And we've got ambitious plans for our online development and growth as well, as well as developing an outpatient service. The team really understood that reputation is fundamental and that we have to operate a safe organization we have to keep the community safe because these are real people with real problems real lives and they got that they asked us really difficult questions which right. i liked they got really into the regulation they were asking us about the complexities of what we did they had really done their homework and that reassured me you know people say careful what you wish for right but what i wanted from the board as we started to grow was firstly more support but secondly more challenge mm. because you know i've got blind spots there are things that i don't know and they've done this before that's a great opportunity for you as you said before putting people around you yeah to be able to spot those issues yeah yeah and it's a terrible phrase but take you on that journey with you 100 percent. yeah and they can say, oh, we've done this before. We've scaled in this way before. You need to think about X, mm. you know. And mm. yeah, it's been great so far. Kerry, you've touched on a few things that you're working on in terms of new buildings, new locations. What's the future? What's your big mission for Ori? So the big mission for Ori is recovery for all. 
I do not believe in 2023 that people should be dying of an eating disorder. And I do not believe that in 2023 you should not be able to get help for an eating disorder. I find it shocking. So what Ori is setting out to do is ensure that everybody who needs to get treatment can get treatment. Now, that might not always be through Ori. It's about actually raising awareness. It's about having conversations. It's about talking about the stuff that's a bit uncomfortable, Mm. but getting comfortable around it and doing the sort of stereotype myth busting work along the way, really. So that's our job. Kerry, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. I'm going to ask you one final question because... A lot of our listeners are like you, they're entrepreneurs, they're building businesses, and I guess following in many of your footsteps. Along the last four years, what's been the one thing that you've learned about yourself? So the one thing that I would say I've learned about myself in the last four years is I'm braver than I thought I was. I'm more resilient than I thought I was. And I need a lot less hours to sleep than I used to think that I did. (laughs) (laughs) I can get by now on four or five hours. I'm not sure that's a skill you want to have. (laughs) But it comes in handy. But yeah, I think courage and resilience. Kerry, many thanks and great to talk to you. Let's hope to see you again and many thanks. Brilliant. Thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you've heard, please tell us by leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to Beyond Markets on your favourite podcast player to stay up to date with our latest episodes. To learn more about Julius Bayer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbayer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com slash legal slash podcasts for further important legal information.